Welcome to another episode of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the blog and podcast covering all kinds of bits and pieces in philosophy, theology, social issues, and the way things cost more than they used to. I'm your host, Glenn Peoples. You may recall that in the last episode on Divine Command Ethics, I made a really big deal over the fact that it was episode 40, and that was a real milestone for me. Well, it wasn't. I won't bother telling you all the rather mundane details of how I got the episodes mixed up and why, but it was really only episode 39. This is episode 40. But since I made such a big fuss last time over it being episode 40 when it wasn't, I'm not going to repeat that fuss now. If If you want the fanfare, just go back and listen to the start of episode 39, then come back and listen to the rest of episode 40, this one, which is the real one. Now, the real episode 40 is actually related to the previous episode. Last time, I was talking about divine command ethics, which is a view that grounds moral duties in the commands or the will of God. Now, this episode is also about morality being grounded in God, and it's called God and the Social Nature of Morality. Previously at the blog, as well as in my radio discussion on the Unbelievable Radio Show, I outlined the way that I articulate a moral argument for the existence of God, and I do it like this. Premise number one, if there are moral facts, then their basis is either natural or supernatural, where these two categories are construed as mutually exclusive. Premise number two, the basis of moral facts is not natural. Premise number three, therefore, if there are moral facts, then their basis is supernatural. Premise number four, The most plausible way to think of a supernatural basis of moral facts is in terms of a supernatural person who brings moral facts about. And the conclusion, number five, therefore, if there are moral facts, then the most plausible way to think of their basis is in terms of a supernatural person who brings moral facts about. Now, logically... This all hangs together just fine. If premises 1 and 2 are true, then premise 3 logically follows. If premises 3 and 4 are true, then the conclusion logically follows. So the argument is what's called logically valid. You can't fault the argument. Even if it's not correct in its conclusion, it's not illogical. So if you're going to fault the argument, if you're going to deny the conclusion, you've got to show that at least some of these premises are not true. So how might somebody go about making this claim? Well, let's look at the argument. This particular argument doesn't state that there are moral facts, so there's no point atta- attacking that claim because that would be, you know, you'd be attacking a straw man. The first claim is that if moral facts were to exist, then they would be either natural or supernatural, and that's a pretty rock-solid claim. 
Natural and supernatural are meant here to be understood as mutually exclusive, so that absolutely everything that's not natural is supernatural. Where supernatural or non-natural, you can use that term as well, those terms just mean that something is not part of the universe. That's what it means here anyway. So there are only really two premises that you could deny. You might deny premise two, that the basis of moral facts is not natural. You might uh, take a leaf out of the book of Sam Harris and say that, well, actually the basis of morality is natural. Harris makes this claim. I, I don't think he makes his case very well. And in a previous episode, I've explained why I think that he fails. But the other premise that you might deny is premise four, which says the most plausible way to think of a supernatural basis of moral facts is in terms of a supernatural person who brings moral facts about. Now, it's mostly this premise that I'm going to be discussing, well, indirectly, today. And I'm going to be discussing it in terms of the social nature of morality, which is a term that will need a bit of unpacking. So let's look at this claim. Why say that we should think of the basis of morality in terms of a person who brings moral facts about. Now, this premise, this claim, arises in a certain context. It arises in a context where we've already settled on the following claim, namely that there is no basis, sorry, no natural basis of moral facts. Now, I've argued for this elsewhere. I looked at it in my short series on the moral argument, and I'm not going to argue for it here. I will note in passing that a number of sharp philosophers who themselves have been atheists have granted this point. Natural facts are facts about what is, and they don't in and of themselves tell us what ought to be. Uh, I think of John Mackey and Michael Ruse, a testimony to this. In recognition of this fact, and still wanting to preserve the idea that there really are moral facts, some philosophers have said that moral facts, yes, they are non-natural, but they also have a non-theistic basis and a non-personal basis. So they're not natural, but they do exist and are not grounded in a supernatural person, let alone God. G.E. Moore was famous for holding a view like this, um, when moral facts are just brute, non-natural facts that don't have their basis in anything else. Now, the view is often just called ethical non-naturalism. Plato's theory was a bit like this too, where the impersonal, non-natural form of the good was the irreducible heart of morality. So I'm, I'm responding to a very real position that does exist. I'm not going to be discussing a straw man. Um, contemporary philosopher Eric Wielenberg, in his book Value and Virtue in a Godless Universe, articulates and defends this view as well, that moral facts are just irreducible, non-natural facts that are just necessary truths, and that is that. There's nothing that makes them true, they just are true. So how might we respond to all of this and argue that actually, contrary to what the likes of G.E. Moore or Eric Wielenberg might, might think, actually... The best way to think of non-natural of, of a non-natural basis of morality is not in terms of some irreducible necessary truth, but actually in terms of something personal. I think, this isn't what I'm going to be looking at today, but I think that the moral obligations that we know of 
have an intentional or an imperative aspect to them that is not compatible with their being simply brute impersonal facts. They seem like expressions of a will. Moral facts, if you could personalize them, you know, make make moral facts themselves persons, you would say they have desires. They aren't just states of affairs that we just incidentally abide by or model. We are impelled to emulate those st- those states of affairs as though we are satisfying someone or something by modeling them, something with desires and, and intentions for us. Abstract entities don't want us to do anything. Only personal entities could do that. Now, obviously, I'm being very superficial and summary in nature, just indicating the kind of reasons that I would use, and obviously they would need to be fleshed out. But once we've accepted that there is not a natural basis of moral facts, I think we're really pushed, for these reasons, towards a non-natural or supernatural person as the basis of moral facts. But today, I'm going to be looking at what I see as a slightly different way of approaching the issue. According to philosopher Robert Adams, Robert Merrihew Adams, author of a number of excellent books in philosophy, especially moral philosophy, the social nature of moral facts weighs against the view that morality has a purely natural basis. That's his position. However, if he's right, then his take on moral facts as being basically social in nature also weighs heavily against the idea that the basis of moral facts is not natural and not personal, because it actually requires a personal basis of moral facts. It supports the contention that if there were a non-natural basis of moral facts, then it's best construed in terms of a non-natural person, which is what my formulation of the moral argument claims as well. That's what I'm looking at today, God and the social nature of moral facts. Now, I, I make no secret of the fact that Most of what I'm saying here isn't original at all with me. It's my explanation of what Adams has to say, but I'm going to be offering my own comments on it as well. Okay, so with that rather wordy introduction having been made, let's get started. So what do we mean when we use this term social nature, you know, the social nature of obligation? Just before I started preparing this episode, I mentioned on Facebook that this is what I was going to be talking about, and that was the first question that somebody asked me. What do you mean by social nature? And secondly, how on earth could that support the moral argument for God's existence? Why wouldn't it rather support a naturalistic basis for morality? Now, I'm not going to say a whole lot on why the idea of a natural natural basis of morality fails. I do that elsewhere. But I suspect, and I can say this because I know the person who made the comment and I, I've discussed it with him before, I suspect that what he meant was that morality is a social convention. That is, it's, a, it's a, something that societies construct over time. And so there's nothing deeper to it than that. No metaphysical grounding is needed. And so we can explain morality's existence in purely natural terms. Now, that's not quite, in fact, it's not at all what I mean by the term social in this context, and it's not how that term is used in the literature on the moral argument and divine command ethics either. Of those arrangements, those entities or those states of affairs that have a social element, only some of them are constructed by society. In saying that moral facts have a social element, 
what I'm referring to is the idea that moral facts have a built-in relational aspect to them, whether they are social constructs or not. Moral facts, if they have a social aspect to them, are never just about you as an individual who has requirements. They always involve another, someone else, whether individually or corporately. And it is here that they have their uniquely moral quality. So let's flesh out this social or relational aspect of morality. In human society, whether formally arranged as in the modern state or even just any collection of people who live in community with each other, Think about why we would do the right thing or why we would have any requirement to do anything. Obviously, that's a big question and I don't want to start from the ground up. But let me say just quickly that it's not merely self-interest. Sometimes doing the right thing doesn't bring about the most desirable consequences for you. Imagine if you were speeding in your car and somebody asks you, a policeman (laughs) asks you, how fast were you going just then? Well, telling the truth might not bring about the best consequences for you, but it still seems like the right thing to do. So what's the motivation to do the right thing? Punishment? Well, yes, sometimes. But I want to get us thinking about this in the absence of reference to backlash or payoff. What might motivate you to fulfill some obligation? Well, Adam's answer is that valuing certain social bonds is the answer. Now, notice that this is not meant to be construed in a a forward-looking way. You know, if I do this, then I'll promote a certain type of relationship. She'll like me, (laughs) you know, or or some sort of positive spin-off will occur in the future. And I want that relationship, so this is good for me. No, this is about the things that we already have and value and which motivate us to act in certain ways as expressions of that value. He says, and I quote, Actual demands made on us in relationships that we value are undeniably real and motivationally strong. Most actual conscientiousness rests, at least partly, on people's sense of such demands. Our awareness of the source of moral motivation is reflected in appeals to be a good citizen or when in a foreign country to remember that you are a guest. End quote. So this kind of demand makes a real difference to whether or not I have an obligation. There can be all sorts of reasons for doing something, self-improvement, pleasure, and so on, but there's something distinctive about having an obligation to do something. The reason of obligation is not like other reasons. As Adams says, and I quote again, the perception that something is demanded of me by other people in a relationship that I value does help to make it intelligible that I should feel that I have to do it, end quote. So they are actual social bonds, real existing relationships. Secondly, as far as motivations are concerned, it matters how we are related to the others in question. For example, the demand might be made by a community, say the community of those who live in New Zealand, That's a social bond that I value because I live in New Zealand and to a reasonable extent it's a community that is favorably disposed towards me. I haven't ticked off too many people when it comes to rights, privileges and so on. But if on the other hand I was treated like a renegade, guilty of a crime that I didn't commit with no guarantee of due process, you know, if that's how I was related to the community, if the community was hostile toward me and didn't value me at all, then I'm not particularly motivated to do what they want. 
So that's the second thing. It, it matters how we're related to the others. Thirdly, it also matters what those others are like. For example, my motivation to adhere to the demands of a wise, reflective and caring, democratically elected body of lawmakers in this country is going to be very different from my motivation to demand to to follow the demands of a dictator like Stalin, who I regard as thoroughly evil and cruel with little sense of fairness at all, if, if any. Lastly, as far as motivation goes, it matters how we evaluate those requirements, those demands that are being made of us. Does the demand strike you as benign, fair, unobjectionable, supportive of some cause that you admire, or do you find it repulsive? Okay. Now, this last element, how you evaluate the demand, is, is really important, and I'm going to come back to it later. So, there's a rough outline of the factors that come into play when describing the social nature of obligation in general. And it's the social nature of obligations that motivate us to comply with them. Now, notice that I haven't said anything specifically about morality. I'm not talking about the features specifically of moral obligations, just obligations per se. For example, obligations to follow the rules of a game or the laws of the land. Obligations, period. Now, if something is an obligation, then we're saying that a breach of that demand is significant in some way. Somebody's status changes if they don't comply with a demand that obligates them. Even if they don't feel any different after neglecting that demand... So they don't feel different, but in fact, they are different. And that's because they have acquired what we call guilt. Notice that they can acquire guilt as a matter of objective fact without the experience of feeling guilty. So if I say you're guilty and you say, no, I don't feel guilty at all, that, that's, you've missed the point. Feeling guilty is a matter of subjective feeling. It's, it's an emotive state, a psychological experience, I suppose you could say. But being guilty or having guilt is an objective state of affairs. Psychopaths, for example, are identified as psychopaths primarily because of the way that they lack the appropriate psychological response to their own breaches of obligation. They offend and they don't feel pity or guilt, but in fact they are guilty. So they have guilt as a matter of objective status, but they don't have guilt as a matter of feeling. That's, how, that's, that's a good way of seeing how those things can be distinguished. So this distinguishes obligation from other reasons for doing things, the fact of guilt. Think about it. By not acting in my own best interests, for example, well, you, you might think that's not prudent, but it doesn't make me guilty. However, by failing to do something that I'm obligated to do, then I do acquire guilt. And guilt is essentially relational. I'm guilty before someone else for failing to live up to some obligation that I have to that someone else. Of course, we're much more likely to actually feel guilty, one would hope, if our breach of obligation actually harmed somebody, for example, if our careless use of a firearm, you know, our breach of the firearms code actually resulted in someone getting shot, then we'd feel pretty bad. At least I hope you would, yeah, unless you're a psychopath. But 
in principle, causing other people harm is not a feature of all guilt. We could imagine, says Robert Adams, rights violations where nobody else is actually harmed. However, what your guilt before another person does is it puts a kind of gulf between you and that person. It alienates you or estranges you from them. And this feature of guilt is actually more significant than that of harm. Now, I've, I've tried to come up with an example that I think captures this. I think this does. Imagine that I'm in an argument about something deeply important to me. It's, it's a personal, sensitive issue. I lose my temper. This is a family reunion where I'm told this kind of thing always happens. And I lash out and I hit a family member. And there may be harm, but more importantly, there's, well, there's, there's strife, there's alienation between us. I've created a rift here. And then imagine that the next day I go, or the next week, depending on how big the rift is, I go back to that person remorsefully. I apologize. We talk things through. They forgive me for my behavior. Now, perhaps some of the physical harm will remain, but something much more significant has just been repaired, namely our relationship. I no longer need to hang my head when I see that person. Not only would I not feel guilty in the same way, although every now and then the folly and wrongness of my past actions would haunt me, but there's a sense in which I would be released from that guilt. The relationship has been restored. My status before that person has changed. The same is true of a whole variety of cases. Imagine a situation where a child you were rude as a child, sorry, you were rude to your parents. Well, the same thing follows. You talk it through, you apologize, relationship is restored, and your status changes as a result. Now, here is where things start to get more interesting. And for what it's worth, I thought it was interesting already, but hold on, because we're about to go to a whole new level. So far, I've just been talking about obligation in general not specifically moral obligation. There is a way of speaking about obligations in pure sociological terms, perhaps even in natural terms, and that's really what I've been doing so far. These kinds of obligations may give us some reasons to do certain things, but they, they might not always be overriding reasons in the way that we think of moral duties or moral reasons. Adam's uses what I think is a striking analogy to show this. And I quote, It is just the notion of an obligation or duty in the sense in which we can agree that Adolf Eichmann had a duty to arrange for the transportation of Jews to extermination camps. Certainly this was not a morally valid or binding duty at all, but it was in some sense a duty. It played a part in a system of social relationships such that there were superiors who, understandably, although immorally, would be angry if he did not do it, and in relation to who he would feel uncomfortable if he did not do it, even if they did not know of this omission. So had he failed to carry out, carry out those duties, then he would have understandably felt uncomfortable in the presence of the people who he had those duties to. That's what he's saying there. So obligations in this very broad sense might be good or bad. Moral or immoral. This way of looking at obligation is what Adams calls pre-moral. 
Morality hasn't even entered the picture yet. We're just asking whether or not something counts as any kind of obligation of any sort. That's kind of redundant, but you know what I mean. Obviously, obligations in general don't need to make appeals to a divine command theory or to God. In fact, it's the other way around. A divine command theory of ethics can draw on the social nature of moral obligations in general. As Adams puts it, and I quote, What divine command metaethics is meant to explain is the nature of obligation, not in the minimal pre-moral sense, but in a stronger, fully moral sense. End quote. Remember the example that I just gave, or that Adams just gave, of, of Adolf Eichmann? What it shows us is that while all the features of the social requirement understanding of obligation have appeal, in order to be a plausible account of moral obligations, the last feature, the one that I said I would come back to, and I, I will now, is very important. It matters how we evaluate the requirement in question. Because while Eichmann had an obligation because of the relationship that he had with people, we would look at that duty, that requirement that was laid upon him to take Jews Jews, Jews, to a miserable death. And we would say, that is terrible. That is morally reprehensible. We understand the sense in which he had a duty to do it. Nonetheless, he ought not to have done it. So now we're talking about moral duty over and above other kinds of duties. How is a purely natural sociological theory of obligation going to enable us to evaluate requirements that are made of us? That's the question that Adams puts to the reader. Now, in order to account for obligations of a whole range of sorts, it's perfectly acceptable for that evaluation to be very subjective in nature. Eichmann, within the context of the Nazi regime, a regime that he subjectively held in high regard and he supported, favorably evaluated, I assume, the requirements that were made of him. But remember that for the purposes of this discussion, we've all agreed that there are moral facts. There are truths about morality, not just subjective opinion, p- opinions of the sort that one might have about flavors, but facts. Things that are objectively true, whether we like it or not. There are therefore obligations that do have all the features of social requirements in a range of situations, but which do not have the kind of objectivity that moral facts would demand. These are not moral obligations. And I would use Eichmann's duty as just such an example. He had an obligation, but it wasn't a moral obligation, that's for sure. On the contrary, in order to see what grounds the moral facts, we need a vantage point higher, as it were, than human societies, while still retaining the features of obligation in general. You can see where this is leading. Seeing a loving God as the source of genuine moral obligation, says Adams, gives us all of this. For example, notice, number one, it really matters how God is related to us. And this parallels one of the features of obligation in general. If God is our creator, if God loves us, if God has a history of issuing commands and God wants a relationship with us, then these factors are all important in motivating us to want to protect the relationship that we can have with God. 
Number two, it matters what God is like. God is all-knowing. God is wise. God is just. Number three, from a motivational perspective, says Adams, it does matter what is required of us. It matters how those demands are related to our existing values. Now here is where I'll confess to perhaps not entirely appreciating Adam's point. Yes, okay, if if we really don't like what is required of us, then we'll feel less motivated to obey. But I'm not sure that pointing this out really adds much. After all, our subjective evaluation can be wrong, as the Eichmann example showed. So I don't know the line of reasoning behind including this feature, but perhaps this feature could instead have been slightly different. Perhaps what we could put here is, is a different version of the of the evaluation feature of social requirements in general like this. From a motivational perspective, it matters that we know that a good, loving, and all-knowing God has, from the vantage point of omniscience, evaluated the command in question in terms of whether or not it aligns with the things that he cherishes. You can put that criteria there instead if you like. Lastly, says Adams, it matters that God has actually issued the command. It's not enough just that we consider the actions loving, and therefore, if a loving God would command something, then it's the right thing to do. Adams isn't convinced that there's one and only one set of commands that a loving God could issue. Maybe there is a bunch of different sets of commands that is compatible with a loving God. But the fact is, by violating those commands, we aren't necessarily harming any relationship with the actual God who exists, because those commands may not have been given. Secondly, hypotheticals, says Adams, are a weak motivational substitute for obeying a God who actually is our loving Creator and Father. As far as motivation is is concerned, Imagining what some equally good being could have told you to do but did not, or may have, is very different from believing that God is there, He does love you, He created you and desires a relationship with you and to do good to you, and He actually does want you to do something. It's quite a significant motivational difference between those two things. I'm going to throw... Another factor into the mix, one that Adams doesn't suggest at this point. You might be familiar with the so-called Euthyphro dilemma. It comes from the dialogue by Plato called Euthyphro. In it, Socrates tries to debunk the idea that piety can be identified as that which the gods love. Well, as every good Greek knows, says Socrates... There are many gods who disagree with one another, and therefore piety or holiness can't be what the gods love because they love different things, and that would lead to a lot of conflicting things all being pious or impious, so you end up in contradictions. Now think about that from a motivational point of view. If morality was the product of human social relationships, we have a plurality of relationships with a lot of different people and a lot of different institutions, And it's plausible to think that many of them, much of the time, could make competing, conflicting demands on us. In fact, they do. (laughs) This would prevent morality from being objective, if morality were grounded in these relationships. And it would also corrode our motivation to live up to morality, because living up to competing demands really can't be done. 
You know, people complain, look, I've got all these different demands on me. How am I going to fulfill them all? Well, you can't. That's what causes stress. Um, And when you know that you can't live up to the demands that are placed on you, you're not motivated to try and do so. But if we know that God, the one and only God, is the one who places us under a given requirement, then there is none of this complication. Whatever other demands people make of us, the overriding demand, namely the demand of morality, is made by one and only one being. It might sometimes be difficult to figure out what that demand is, but we realize that it is the kind of thing that doesn't have you know, competing voices within it. So I will draw my summary of Adam's discussion on the social requirement aspect of morality to a close here. And I'm going to make some further comments on what he has said. If you're sitting there waiting for the part where there's a tight, succinct, logically compelling argument, then you'll be disappointed. There isn't one. And there really wasn't meant to be one. That's not the way all good reasoning is done. What Adams does in explaining this is to get us to see that a divine command theory is relevantly like a more general theory of obligation by looking at the social nature of obligation in general. And he argues that in order to apply these more general principles of obligation to the specific question of what moral obligations are, then we need to move beyond the facts of natural society and to a source of morality that stands above the human race. Now, you, you can avoid this line of reasoning. If you don't like where it's heading, you can back out and, and prevent yourself from being dragged to the conclusion that you don't want. You could avoid the force of the argument by just denying that obligations in general are distinctive because of their social features. But the reality is, well, obligations kind of are like that. that that's our experience. Obligations being socially generated is a pretty intuitive idea. This feature of obligations in general is recognizable by everyday people in everyday circumstances. In in short, the shoe just kind of seems to fit. You could avoid the force of this argument by denying that moral obligation is a species or a type of the wider category of obligation. You could say, yes, that's how obligation in general works, but moral obligation isn't quite like that. But why would you? And apart from being motivated to avoid the place that you know this argument is going, namely to God, apart from the desire to reverse engineer your thinking about morality just so that you don't have to grant the force of any argument for theism, why would you otherwise, under normal circumstances, deny that moral obligation is just one sort of the wider category of obligation? It would look to me like a pretty contrived move. Now, you could reject this whole enterprise by rejecting the idea that there are moral facts, as some do. But remember, I prefaced this whole discussion within a certain context. This discussion comes after an agreement that there really are moral facts, and now let's talk about how we account for them. So this discussion about the social nature of obligation is part of the enterprise of giving an account of those facts. So the moral skeptics have already left the discussion. So given that you do accept moral realism the view that there really are moral facts. The plausibility of seeing moral facts as social in nature and transcending human social conventions does offer plausibility to the view that moral facts are in fact non-natural and grounded in a person. Now, as with any podcast episodes, I absolutely welcome your thoughts 
on all of this. Is Adams right? Is he wrong? Am, am I wrong to be sympathetic towards his point of view? Is, is this whole idea way out in left field? Drop me a line at the blog or send me an email through the contact page. Remember, for those listening to this through the iTunes store, the blog is www.beretta-online.com. And yes, we have reached the end. This is a, a markedly shorter episode than than a lot of the gargantuan episodes that have come out lately. Well, I say lately, but they're pretty few and far between. But this is a relatively brief episode by comparison. And there are a few more on the way, probably not in the too distant future. I've got a few ideas going around and I'm bashing on my keyboard a bit, putting some episodes together. At this stage, I believe the next one will be on the question of what faith is from an epistemological point of view. At this stage, I shouldn't make any promises about what the next episodes after that will be about because I'm still deciding uh, what they are and the order in which they will appear. However, until the next episode does appear, please feel free to come along and loiter at the blog. Discuss the things that I'm discussing there with me. Please feel free to offer feedback on this or any previous podcast episode for that matter. And until the next episode does appear, this is your host, Glenn Peoples, signing off yet another episode of... Shut up to my little friend!